Good evening and welcome to the Viva Cost podcast. My name is Graham Spence and tonight I'm joined by Alison Graham. Hello, Alison. Hello, Graham. How are you? I am good. I am good. I was thinking this is our exact in- intro every time we do a podcast. Like it's actually quite that funny well. that we do this exact. We're, we need to come up with something. Um, hello, how are you? Um, gig. We need to come up with something a bit more bold, don't we? Mm, exactly. Well, we have we have a. Uh, an interesting show tonight, because, of course, Scottish politics is busy being an absolute bin fire at the moment, um, and there's an awful lot happening. Um, we've got conflicting polls that are coming out. We're seeing that um, the SNP is both done for, and the Labour Party in ascendancy, and then we're seeing the opposite, that the Labour Party are, in fact, not moving at all, and the SNP has retained its support. So. Yeah. The truth is, the polling doesn't even tell us what's happening. What it does tell us is Scottish independence seems secure against the backdrop of the leading party of government not managing to handle the ball as well as they possibly should. Independence is still resilient. So there's some good news, there's some bad news. It's an interesting time in Scottish politics. um, Tonight we've got two main topics. One of them is looking at other countries and other sort of domiciles and seeing how they do politics. And secondly, we're going to pontificate, not specifically about the SNP, but since everybody's now calling for transparency and openness, which was a key plank of our action plan for Ash, Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about um, what we would see as the critical things and the ways that we would demonstrate that if we were designing a, a new political party from the ground up. And then we're going to drop an exclusive on the Scottish Independence Party Scott that's taking um, social media by storm just now in the belief that there is a new political party. We have an exclusive for Vive Watcher, watchers and listeners. Yep. From a bit of research. So. <laughs> Doing quite a bit of research. So, what, what what do you think? So, we've obviously got transparency. The NEC, the SNP met today. They had, a, they had a long meeting, I understand, and they, they, they had some problems. Um, their problems come in in the sense that not only have they got some financial conundrums, and if we put them to the side just now, we've got a situation where the Treasurer is quoted with saying that there possibly isn't enough money coming in to keep you know, the standard of upkeep that the SNP has come to expect in good working order. And then secondly that the SNP possibly need to spend some money on how to become more transparent with forensic accountants and such being brought in to get to the bottom of their pickles. So let's let's start from the top. What 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 do what should a political party look like when it comes to transparency, not just of finances, but of governance? Yeah, so I think key thing to look at is um, what governance actually is because it's been bandied about quite a lot over the last wee while um, and it's certainly something when I stood for the NEC in 2020, November 2020 for the 2020-2021 kind of session um, <clears throat> it was certainly a platform that I stood on looked at like you know good governance and transparency um, and clarity and you know communication good communication with the members and representing them so essentially if you've got good governance you are of a mindset that you know you are putting things in place to ensure that you know you hope you hope it's never really visible but it's there it's a bit like having your house insured you know you really hope nothing happens you have to claim on your insurance 
But if anything does happen, you know, it's the safety net that, that's there. Or like, you know, car insurance and stuff. Although a lot of those are actually kind of legal requirements. Um, but so governance, for particularly for a membership organisation that is there on, you know, people in the NEC, for example, are like the, the board of directors. So they are representing, they are there and empowered by the conference, which is actually the authority of the party, to make decisions on behalf of the members. One of the things that I found really odd is that there seems to have been quite a lot of NEC meetings of late or, you know, communications of late. But there was a conference promise, a special conference that was an emergency when the Supreme Court um, passed the judgment back in November. And then it was mm -hmm. March, it was mid-March, I think it was Mother's Day, wasn't it? 19th of March, which is, yeah, was. was mentioned a few times during the campaign because we got asked about it as well. Um, so all the candidates got asked about it, all the candidates' campaigns got asked about it. And it was all, I think everybody had said, yes, this is something we should do. So we're now mid-April, recess is over on Monday, Parliament's back. There's been no discussion at all about having a, a spring conference, which I thought the March one kind of was, just the SNP spring conference. So it looks as if the SNP yeah. are not having a conference in spring, which given <clears throat> that the NEC are only empowered intra-conference, um, it would seem that the appropriate thing to do would be to bring the members together to actually discuss this in a wider way, rather than having the same subset of people that clearly didn't see that go not having governance was not was an issue, um, mm -hmm. and the transparency. If, if you only if you're only driven to that point because something external has happened to you know force the issue, then you're maybe not the best people to understand the importance and understand you know what level you need to go to and how you would design that. So we've talked a lot over you know all the time that we've kind of like known each other about the idea of doing politics differently and how it might be scary for a lot of political parties or people who have been in the kind of political sphere for a long time to kind of contemplate <coughs> the idea of openness and transparency. But I think what's been proven over the last few years is that not having it is actually a bigger risk because, you know, yeah. you've said before, you know, you either control your own message proactively or you're forced into position of reacting. So it's a little bit like the saying, you either look after your wellness or you're forced to look after your illness. It's the same with any organisation. You either have got good governance so that you feel secure in everything that you're doing or you get called out and then you, if you're running to, oh, we need governance, I'm kind of thinking you're probably not the right people to put that in place if you don't actually yeah, It's a little bit like driving without insurance, hoping you don't have an accident. So basically we're saying that, you, you know, at the root of it, you have to be the right sort of people that believe in the idea of, you know, good, good, good policy and good procedure and good process. Yeah. Because if you don't believe in that at the outset, you're probably not going to be the, the guarantor of it when you're in the, the building. Yeah. So one of the, one of the sort of ideas that we put out there, and this is probably the easy, you know, we'll pick on the easy examples and we'll get a bit more in depth as we go. Now, it's worth noting, we're going to attribute this to our, you know, our thistle party, our, our fake party that we yeah. concocted to, to make some of these arguments, because it's not, in fairness to the SNP, the SNP are not the only people here who have a bit of a um, dilemma, because I believe all the other political parties are also, in some form, lying or being deceitful about the amount of membership they actually have. So it's the nature of politics as yes, it is. At it's, the moment. it's the 
It's the nature of just everybody pretending they're bigger than they yeah. actually are, not being, you know, you not being it. real about it. So, so one of the things that we put forward and one of the, the, the sort of key ideals that you and I sort of espouse is that the membership should be an open number. Now, this is something that's closely, uh, it's a closely guarded secret by um, political parties where they don't think they should share this number because it'll either embarrass them or, you know, seem odd to them. But the truth is, and, you know, it's the same across all the political parties, out of, you know, 100 members, you're going to be very lucky if there are 10 members who are actually active. active. Yeah, so there's about a 10% ratio of people who are active. Mm -hmm. However, the other 90% provide, obviously, finances and possibly... You know, they provide that. However, they also, I mean, they provide the funding in exchange for occasionally get to vote in a leadership election or such, but they, they, they often don't turn out to, you know, the, the political tests that we have to go through, such as election campaigns. So that 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 10%, I, I'm sure it could be improved, but then there's a lot of people who I think join a political party with just the express desire to be a member without need wanting to do anything with that yeah. membership. So... I don't think that's that's not unique. That's not an SNP only thing. It's true of all political parties. Um, and then we've got to have a look at how that number is published. So currently, for reasons unknown, the Electoral Commission doesn't require political parties to actually disclose their membership. It isn't a, there's no legal requirement in in writing anyway to force any political party to disclose their party membership. So you, you rely on certain events to, you know, publish the membership number. These are usually leadership elections. And during them, we get an insight to how big political parties are. Now, some people estimate the Scottish Labour Party at 10,000 members. Given that that would be quite a good number for them, I think they would publish it if it was true. Yeah. So I believe it probably isn't true. The Alba Party are busy, you know, occasionally some of their supporters estimate the Alba Party is at 10,000 members. It is not. The Alba Party, I think, is probably closer to the 3,500 members. Um, the Green Party famously said they had 6,000 members. I don't think that's true anymore. And I, I would imagine the Greens don't have 2,000 members at this particular moment in time. And I would... The Lib Dems have quite a sticky membership, so I would imagine yeah. they're probably still about there, 5,000. Um, and the Scottish Conservatives just put out random numbers, so I have no idea to guesstimate what their membership would be. Um, the other thing is the Scottish Labour membership's inflated because... A lot of the a lot of the memberships are from affiliated trade unions, so you're a member of the Labour Party, whether you kinda know it or not. Um so I mean, in our fake thistle party that doesn't exist, I think our main proposal was actually there's no reason we wouldn't put on the 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 sort of sign up page or the the front page like join X number of members that are already a part of this party. So it'd be kinda you know Let's just say Thistle has two thousand members. Mm -hmm. It would say you know there are currently two thousand one hundred and eighteen, you know, members, and we would define that. And it's quite we have mm -hmm. to make sure we're clear here. And this is where you've obviously got industry experience in membership organisations subscriptions. An active member is somebody who is paying month to month, uh, or has paid for their annuity, their year, their annual plan, and is currently up to date with their payments. That isn't. That is a full member. I'm a correct yeah. or is there it more is, to well, it? It depends on the party's constitution. So certainly the SNP's is, is constitutionally you have to be 
you have to pay to be a member because it costs um, it costs the organisation to to administer a membership. You know, so there is actually mm -hmm. a cost to administering each member. Um, but also, you know, constitutionally, it's like your kind of commitment to the party. Otherwise, you know, anybody could just join just to um, you know to get a vote. And quite often for elections. Um, internal elections, they will put. I know certainly in bran my branch, you know, they changed the branch constitution so that people couldn't move branch just to vote in their AGMs and stuff. And there was some all sorts of mm. stuff going on in Stirling about like trying to get, you know, quite, you know, reasonably senior people trying to get people, like friends of mine, to, to leave their branch to join the branch that was just about to have an AGM because they were worried about getting taken over by some other part of it. So there's all sorts of nonsense, which is why you have constitutions and why you have standing orders so that there are rules there and really you wouldn't want to be ha having somebody coming in and taking over the executive of your branch who's never been in your branch before because um, that would be you know yeah. not particularly democratic for the you know the, the members that have been there and committed and doing all the work and raising all the funds because all the branches do their own fundraising as well it's a branch so what, are the, so what are the downsides to publishing the membership number, what are the downsides, Alison? So, there must be some. So the down, I think the perception of downsides is that it's a competitive thing. So it's some, it's given ammunition. This is what the political parties will tell you, and this is why when I was in the NEC, there was an utter obsession with leaks. Everything was like leaks, leaks, leaks to the point I thought we were, I was in Play Cymru at one point. Um, like you know, <laughs> the party of Wales, because there was so many, so much talk about leaks, but. Um, the, the kind of nonsense of that is like in a corporate environment, you know, they, they actually do projects on trying to, you know, increase their membership. So some of the things that you would do is your kind of what they call core KPIs, your key performance indicators of if you're a membership or subscriber organization and that's a good chunk of your income, then that is something that you want to report on. And a lot of organizations like Sky TV report this to the city and that's the things that affect their share number so it's like your subscriber number and your average revenue per subscriber or per user they call it so it would be your average revenue per member so you would say for all your members how much is your kind of average income now i know the snp used to break that down by kind of different um you know they'd cut it in different ways like demographics and stuff they would have like you know by age, by, um, you know, by sex, so like how many women you had and how many men you had and, you know, how many, you know, you know under, what, what's YSI now, like 31 or something? I think I'd bought a house there on Saturday. But anyway, um, you know, things like that are over 60s or over 65s or what have you. So because what that tells you is, are, are things that you're doing affecting your membership in positive or negative ways? And it's affecting across the board or is there specific demographics or specific cuts of your membership that are being particularly affected and this kind of comes into play with the, the question mark over the lost membership um, aligning with the, the GRR bill you know yep. most of the members that were lost were from a, a particular um, demographic like um, like, like your know, women uh, were leaving the party then that's something you would think would be a bit of an alarm bell that you had to scrutinised a bit more detail and work out what was it, you know, speak to members, particularly speak to people who've left. And I think that's what most organisations, um, or political parties certainly, don't do well. They don't do a kind of exit interview that you would do. I mean, customers um, of corporate business try to win customers back because it's much cheaper to retain customers and sell more to your existing customer base than it is to go out and get new customers. 
Um, yep. So political parties are the same. Like the kind of the effort to actually reach out to somebody who's not been, you know, minded to join your party before. What is going to one make them want to join any political party, and two make them join your political party? So I think you know there needs to be a lot more kind of detail in that. But the other key thing is um, churn. So churn is a key performance indicator to see what is the turnover. You know how many people have left as opposed to how many people have have joined, and that is something that in Thistle in our theoretical party you would look to track on a kind of dashboard to say, here's our total membership number, which, you know, people looking at it on an ad hoc basis, that might not mean much to them. But if you can say that our churn rate is, you know, 5%, that's probably quite good. You know, our churn rate's like getting up to 10, 11%. Mm, we maybe have to look at that because that's what it's starting to cost us because people are leaving. Why are they leaving? Because, and we're having to go out and spend money to bring people in through promotions, etc. So there's a whole bunch of stuff you need to look at. But fundamentally, transparency by having a dashboard that people can see at a glance, how are you doing? And what are your actions from that dashboard? What's that information telling you that you need to do? It, it's, a bigger, it's a bigger piece on as well, that if you do that in public, at least it tells you know the public as well, and it tells you know, the people watching, the commentators. Yeah you're very clear that if there's an event that is costing you politically inside your own party and it's costing you your own members, that mm -hmm. it is something that you have to reverse course. And, you know, there's, it was, one of the things that was always kind of odd in the SNP is there was the great um, soapbox, um, you know, that you know when Nicola Sturgeon, uh, sorry, the broom cupboard speech. Yeah. You know, the soapbox and broom cupboard yeah. speech where effectively some um, young members suddenly started leaving the party or apparently started leaving the party because I don't think they actually left the party because they all seemed to back in well, about they did. a day later. But anyway. I think some of them got straight through vetting into being councillors. So, so they, they all of a sudden were leaving the party and Nicola Sturgeon straight in her broom cupboard and on her soapbox mm -hmm. was effectively demand, you know, demanding everybody else changed their their sort of stance and mm. suddenly we had to give this more weight than it was possibly getting because the party on a whole was kind of like, nah, we're not interested in that issue. So the interesting thing is, though, if that had been, and we're not going to go into the specific issue because I don't want us to get dragged into what was the specific issue, mm -hmm. but I want us to think about it more holistically in the sense yeah. of... If that had been different and the SNP at that time had a grid that was kind of like the week-on-week -week sort of gain or loss of mm -hmm. members, yep. if the average party member could see that the SNP lost, I don't know, a reasonable number, let's say it had lost 500 members in a day, yeah, mm -hmm. that would have been something that the average party member would be like, well, that's a, that's a situation that we need to know more about, and maybe we do need to be more understanding, or maybe we do need to give it more air. This topic requires further debate, or it would have, I think, would have opened the ability for discussion rather than closed it down. Yeah. But what we, the information we had to go on was that Nicola Sturgeon said a lot were leaving, and I don't think, in truth, that was ever sort of proven in the numbers because the in the next, you know, in the next conference, put that numbers had gone up. So, well, it, yeah. there was a really interesting thing at that time that a friend of mine who was a membership secretary was very mm -hmm. much quite a small branch, so very, very good, you know, membership secretary who did what I would say is what a membership secretary should do kept an eye on the mem branch membership. And if anybody 
anybody left, they would try and, you know, win them back. Like a lot of corporate organisations will, you know, like, why are you leaving? And, you know, that's good practice. Why are you leaving? Is there anything we can do? Um, you know, it, you know, is it something we've done? Or, you know, what can we do to, to improve things? And there was a couple of members who had been terminated and she phoned to HQ to ask, you know, what happened because she said, this is really odd. Um, I want to try and win these members back, but I don't seem to be able to do this now because it's been terminated. And uh, they said, that'll be because of what Joanna Cherry said. And she said, but I haven't told you who they are. She hadn't actually given them any detail. And that's what HQ actually said to her. So I think it's a bit like perception becoming the rule of, you know, why people are leaving. The other thing about what Nicola did, about the whole thing about there's a lot of people leaving, how does she know? If they don't know, if they're not tracking the membership turn, they're not tra tracking the membership number, which we're now being told that nobody knew it was a big surprise that they dropped 30,000 members yeah. um, you know, during the election campaign for the leadership, then how did she know about those ones? And it's like, you know, I when I left, I sent an email to Stuart Stevenson, who was the the national secretary because I was a member of the NEC just to explain, you know, not everybody does, but I, I explained, you know, politely explained my reasons thinking, you know, this is hopefully a learning exercise kind of thing. I never heard anything back. So, you know, you can only do, do what you can do, but it is a big loss if you don't understand why people, one, if you don't understand that they are leaving, you definitely can't do anything about it. Two, if you don't understand why they're leaving, even if you understand that they have left, then you're not learning anything from it. And three, if you're not measuring turn and you're not measuring the membership number, you know, like frequently, that's something that you should be keeping a very solid eye on, particularly because politically things change all the time and it can be a bit of a roller coaster. Then if you're not actually tracking that and if you make a specific action to try and resolve why 500 members have left over a week or something, then if you take a specific action, you want to know that it's worked. And if it's working and actually the people are renewing or their um, new members are coming on board or the, the drop rate you know, of people leaving is, is you know, controlled, is back to kind of normal levels again, because there's always people drop off for whatever reason mm -hmm. um, that you, you kind of can't get back. But if you're not checking that, then you don't know whether your actions, you don't know to take action. And if you, you know, even if you do take action, you don't know whether it's working. So it's a little bit like trying to manage a business when you're, you're blindfolded with your hands tied behind your back, which is a really and odd thing considering members are the core of a membership organisation. They provide the majority of the finance and they provide um, your engine, your your oil to make the machine work, like for your activities, for your ideas, for your policies, for your conference, um, for yeah. your manifesto, to keep to get people elected. And even, even growing the talent to become elected members should be coming from the membership. So for me, the whole thing is really quite bonkers, you know, like from a kind of corporate background to look at political party. I was really gobsmacked um, with the kind of level that things are at and how easy it would be to fix a lot of this stuff, which was the intention of a, certainly myself and a lot of others I know who went into the NEC or different committees and stuff to try and bring their professional experience to 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 assist, really. Um, so... Yeah, I think uh, I well, think the idea of doing well, thistle and doing it theoretically is good because it's not just words saying we're actually demonstrating what yeah. good looks like. And I think a lot of political parties don't know what good looks like when it comes to basic hygiene of governance and, you know, transparency that, that builds trust 
And politics is all about trust. If you lose trust, it's very, very hard to build trust. And it can take a lot of time to build your credibility and your integrity over time. But it's very, very easy to lose. And then it's very hard to win back. The other thing is, I mean, it eventually gets published anyway. I mean, you're going to have an election, you're going to have something, the number's going to come out, and you're going to have to justify it, as we've seen. The next next sort of thing is finances. So this this is a rather interesting topic, because... Political parties aren't usually registered companies, so they're not yeah. usually limited by they're not usually by limited guarantee. by guarantee, which which is odd because there's nothing that actually precludes them from being a registered company. But we'll roll on. Um, politic- so they they do have to declare though their finances. So legally, a uh, political party. We were looking into like the specifics of this. So yeah. You need to name effectively your large donors. You need to you need to do a basic account for how much cash mm-hmm. you have on hand and what you've spent it on. During an election campaign or during a sort of regulated period, which is the long and short campaigns, you have to declare your spending in both the long and short campaign. There's mm-hmm. there's regulation to declaring your spending. You need to provide after a certain threshold, you have to provide audited accounts, and it's two hundred and fifty thousand pounds to provide mm-hmm. an audited account. And you effectively need to do this to the Electoral Commission and it ends up public anyway. So the, the the great thing is if you have any donations of note and you have any expenditure of note, it is declared anyway. You, you physically have to declare it um, in one form or another. If it's during a campaign period through the campaign expenditure and donation yeah. return yeah. and in an unregulated period, which is any time between a political... Um, campaign or election, you have to declare your income and not in granular detail, but mm-hmm. you have to declare your expenditure anyway. And this this is something that's rocked a lot of political parties because the, the story goes that Scottish Labour have absolutely no money whatsoever and UK Labour have to throw money in to keep them afloat. And then mm-hmm. the second one is that the SNP obviously had £600,000 that demonstrably it got to the end of the year and they just didn't have £600,000 in the account. So they, they had definitely not ring-fenced it in the, in, the, in the conventional term of it being sat to the side with an actual fence around it. So they, they, they couldn't have had that money. Public fact, the money, you know, they had spent at least a, a grand proportion of the money because it wasn't in the account. And that leads us on to... What does good look like here? What financial information do you think that, you know, given that we're already having to declare donations and we're already having to declare expenditure in election time, does it not seem remiss that we don't just publish that anyway? Like, yeah, I think it, the question is, you do it anyway for election time. You know, political parties, if they're fighting local elections, Holyrood elections and Westminster elections in Scotland and used to fight also the European elections up until... Yeah. Um, you know, we left the EU in, uh, what was, when was the last one? 2019, May 2019. Was the last mm. one. So, you know, there used to be four elections, you know, you're you're pretty much only about 18 months away from an election at any one point. So the yeah. question is, is it, is it not, is it, does it not raise more questions why you wouldn't just continue with the same level of, you know, transparency as you do during an election campaign? Just be, it's almost like I'm only doing it because the electoral commission make me. Now that's not yeah. that's not really the way to 
instill trust in people that you need to keep giving you money you know to, to continue whether it's through membership fees or through fundraisers and donations and uh, legacies as well a lot of political parties and other like and charities and different things you know uh, are benefactors of um you know people who who have passed away and left them money in the will um so all these things are income so if you're mm -hmm. a, a membership organization one of your core things to be focused on is how stable is my income and can my income meet my expenditure now, yeah. for political campaigns, there are rules with the Electoral Commission of what how much you can spend on each election, whether it's a local election, whether it's a holiday election, and that differs between a constituency holiday election and the list holiday election, and also in the general election it's different again. So there's all these rules for different elections that can limit that spend. But you know, if you're if you don't have the funding, you know, for example, when we were um, you know, kind of briefly, you know, the six-week campaign for Alba was a six-week campaign that people were like funding as they went, and it's it was very mm. different and had to be very kind of creative in the way you tried to use what money you had or you were raising as you go compared to like you know party machines like the SNP um, on the kind of level of stuff. I mean, a lot of people talk about the Tory leaflets are very glossy and clearly money is not an object and how much mm. scrutiny. I mean, I know. Like vote leave and everybody got pulled up by the electoral commission for overspend and different things and people have had a few slap wrists along the way from the electoral commission but it's really fairly toothless from what I've seen so far but you know again come back to what if you've got that scrutiny then isn't it easier just to have your your kind of governance that that is your standard your standard way of demonstrating your your income and your expenditure in a, in a way that's very easy for the people that that you're asking to provide that, you know, income to understand, because that then builds a confidence in them that they will continue to to provide funds the other, for you. The other side of this, the other side of this as well, is obviously accounts are audited after a certain amount, and I believe yeah. that's two hundred and fifty thousand pounds. So, mm -hmm. obviously, up to the quarter million range, it's not audited. And then, yeah. secondly, as we've seen in the case. Uh, Several large parties, actually. It's not just the SNP, but it's topical mm -hmm. because it's in the, the media just now that their auditors actually quit. And this yeah. this raises a question. So first of all, the Electoral Commission, obviously, the, the function of an auditor is to make sure that the, the primary accountant, which, by the way, can be a different partner in the same firm. Um, which it is in the SNP. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It, it, but it, it can effectively, you just need somebody else to go in and from a different, you know, a different, it wasn't the person who created the account. Yeah, exactly. And effectively say That's that. That's the definition I'm of independent. And, yeah, yeah. I'm going to. I'm going to check that you've done your sums properly, mm -hmm. but not just you've done your sums properly, that the understanding as the rules have been put forward. So this, this is something yeah. that sometimes... It gets debated in accounting circles and it's quite boring. So let's talk about depreciation, for example. Depreciation is commonly understood to be the, the capex cost of something, so the capital expenditure. You buy an item, yep. um, and let's let's say that item, I mean, you don't capex at this low amount, but let's pretend that we do capex at £100 just for easiness because I'm stupid at math. Um, so we're starting at £100, and then basically what we're going to do is over seven years... We're going to pay for. We're going to account for that item. So it was worth a hundred pound 
in the first year and then you know we we divide it by seven take that amount off every tight every turn of the year so that we then know the equipment value of a set item now for different items that's different so for example for heat and ventilation air conditioning units hvac they, they're normally um, depreciated over a lifetime of about 20 years because generally when you put building ventilation systems in, they're, pr they're pretty much there for the... They're not the, consumable. The, <laughs> they're not consumable. Yeah. Um, they're about 20 years between mm -hmm. replacement. You've also got things like solar panels are generally 10-year yeah. depreciative values. So you mm -hmm. buy them and over 10 years, if it was £100, you'd take £10 off every year, the value. Yeah. So mm -hmm. at the end of the 10 years, they are considered worthless. They are considered mm -hmm. zero. In accounting terms, they, they may still provide some value to the business in the sense of they may still be functionally usable and that that's quite nice because that that, that is effectively a freebie but exactly. yeah. now if i said you know in thistle we're going to depreciate our solar panels that we've put on our you know our our office over mm -hmm. 10 years you may have another account that says actually do you know what you're likely to change them after you know you're going to get a bit more life out of them let's not take quite as much value off them because mm -hmm. actually that's an asset to your business like they're still worth something so rather than over 10 years we're going to go to 20 years which means that we're going to take off only five pounds um, off that hundred pound value every year so they're worth at the end of the 10 years they're still worth 50 pounds mm -hmm. rather than an asset cost being zero so this is something that the auditors are brought in for not that specific example that's a glaring example that's a hyper example it's not it's not even reasonable but it's an example where you get an auditor in and the auditor comes in and says, well, actually, you know what, your, your understanding here is poorer than mine or we need to have a chat about this or, you know, it just kicks the tires and sort of checks that how you're depreciating things, how you are valuing things, how you are accounting for certain things. Like, is that a donation or is that a benefit in kind or is yes. that a... Or is that, a, you know, is, is someone bequeathed that is part of their estate? Like, is this, yeah. what, what what method and how are you attributing that and under what rule are you attributing that? And that's what an auditor yeah. does. Yeah, and there's different rules. Sometimes there's different tax treatments as well for a lot of these yeah. things. So they will make sure that that's all been done correctly. Yeah. The other, the other thing that comes in here, though, is this is perhaps where it's difficult and i understand that the smp had some difficulty finding another auditor i think they put a statement saying they were having trouble but i think political parties in general do struggle for auditors and it's because electoral law is quite specific in what time frames things are and you know there's a great thing that you know if allison owns you know if if our thistle party wanted to print some leaflets and allison owns a business that produces leaflets. Now, let's say for a thousand leaflets, it costs us a hundred pounds. Now, that might be Allison's normal rate, but if any customer, so local cafe, you know, mm -hmm. the hot rolls company, contact Allison and say, "Oh, we're looking for a thousand leaflets," and she's like, "Well, that's a hundred pound," but they can negotiate Allison down to fifty pounds. The interesting thing is, political parties can also usually get the same business deals that exist. To the commercial market so they're not actually it's not worth a hundred pounds because that's not the market rate the market rate is what's the rate that in a general customer it's not a political party could get the cost at which is sometimes not the headline advertised price so this is this is where you get a bit of difficulty because 
should you declare the £100 that nobody is paying, or do you declare the £50, but with a £50, you know, donation in kind? And you get in a bit of a mess there, because the truth is that everybody can get the £50 rate, which means that that is the market rate. Yeah. And then secondly, we move on to things such as if Alison was a printer and I came to her from Fist and I said, look, me and, I, me and you, Alison, go a long way. £50 still too much for me. Can I get 25 And Alison says, I tell you what, I'll do it for the 25 That'll cover my materials. But Alison's only doing that because I'm her friend and it's not a commercially available rate. In that case, we should be declaring the extra, you know, we'd have to declare the £25 cost, but also we should be declaring that £25 was donated As a donation. in kind. And then it comes because... into whether you're a member or not, whether you're allowed to donate, or whether you're allowed to see, this... run the this... But yeah, this it's... is happening up and down the country, yeah. and it's not it's not unique to one party. It no. is, and I, I don't think that... I don't think that it was set in a time when people, you know, it was set in a time when people had rate sheets. And yeah. I don't think it's kind of kept up with no. the the sort of speed. Like, if you spend £100 on Facebook advertising, and this isn't just if you're a political party, if you spend £100 on Facebook advertising, I think you get 10% free or something. Like, they offer you yeah. an extension. A lot more. But that's available to anybody who does Facebook advertising. But... The question then is, is it benefit in kind or is it, is that yeah. just what you, do you know what I mean? Like, well, and I think that the Electoral Commission themselves, effectively, I think they, they, they do do in the sense, they do, you know, they do their spot checks and stuff and they do all that, but they generally believe that the auditors and the, the accountants are telling the truth. There's not, I think it should actually be incumbent on the Electoral Commission to appoint yeah. And I know it's bigger than its current role, but do you not think it's a role for the Electoral Commission to effectively be an auditor of account for political parties? Certainly over the 250,000 range, that they should be effectively turning up and being like, wait a minute, let's just have a look at how, how this is happening so that the rules are so, based on what's happening rather than what we believe should happen. Yeah, so it's interesting because you've got things like um, you know, different organisations, different industries rather, have different types of audits, whether it's, you know, um, British standards or, you know, different, you know, auditing types for different kind of industries. So for political industry, should there not be also, like, you know, as you say, an electric commission being that spot auditor? Not to say that they would want, to, you know, to take on the responsibility and take the, you know, the potential business away from any other, you know, accountants that do, do audit facilities as well. But mm. certainly to do that, you know, audit, like a planned audit and an unplanned audit, etc., to make sure mm -hmm. that things are actually fit for purpose. But the other thing, it's back to good governance. If you want good governance, it's not about tripping people up. It's about trying to empower them to do the right thing. And a lot of that mm -hmm. is to do with, one, knowing what the right thing is, and two, how to do it. And, you know, the other thing, just to kind of quickly say, I don't think I said earlier, about governance and why things are generally not great in political parties, is Plus, people who are involved in politics are very much focused on the context of politics, you know, the environment of politics. But governance isn't about what you do. Governance is about how you do it. And it doesn't really matter whether you're, you know, selling light bulbs or you're running a political party. It's how you do your finances. It's how you do your transparency. It's how you do, like, your documentation and your change management and your controls and your insurance and, 
you know, your risk assessment, your risk register. It's all these things that are set up to make sure you're in the best position to succeed and there's no surprises. And, you know, what we've seen of late is big surprises and that's that is bad planning. That is bad, you know, management, yeah. uh, bad planning, you know, lack of understanding of the importance of governance. There's a lot of talk about governance, but as I say, circling back to I'm not sure, you know, people really understand what governance is or how to do it. But also, and it's not just about documenting governance, all you've got then is a document on a shelf. It's about actually instilling the culture of governance through your whole organisation um, at every level. And one of the things I think you and I learned and uh, Rob through different experiences, you know, kind of over the last few years, is how few people actually understand the role of a political um you know, like you know, be, being a an, an agent, you know, to you know, the uh, kind of election agent, a political election agent. And you know, the the election agent has got a lot of this responsibility for doing all the um you know the paperwork and the submission for the electoral commission that goes up you know to the, the overall party um you know election agent to submit it. But even even at a kind of branch level, um I, I know certainly in the SNP, I don't know how other political parties are structured, but they are separate accounting units, the branches and CAs. So there's yeah. a good there's well over kind of two hundred of them. But if, in my experience, what they tend to do, talking about independent auditors um, and what the definition of an independent auditor is, is that a lot of the branches get their treasurer will be the auditor for another branch or, you know, yeah. so they will share that because, you know, a lot these people are volunteers. So they're, they're volunteers yeah. in a membership organisation and they're doing their best to get things right and they're getting somebody who's not in their branch to check their things. But technically they're all still in the same party. So... Yeah. Somebody mentioned it to me the other week, and I was thinking, yeah, that's that's really interesting. But if if you weren't allowed to do that, then what is the alternative? You're then leaving it to individuals with another burden of having to go out and find somebody who's independent of the yeah. party. And then is that is that then you know like taking the veil of transparency, you know, up so that people can see how do you know the other person's not from a you know uh, an opposition yeah. party or yeah. allegiances or something. So it is quite complicated, which is why. I think coming back to your idea about the Electoral Commission, I think a lot of this stuff needs to be a bit more prescriptive from the Electoral Commission, but also supportive that the you know things are being put in place to really understand how to navigate what we looked at before with the campaign in a box idea, that idea of having a here's a how-to guide to walk you through this. And the Electoral Commission do put up information, don't get me wrong, but there are still a lot of anomalies, even when you're an experienced um, election agent, like the examples you used about Look, Facebook. If you're getting like you know, it's almost like buy five coffees, get your sixth free. Is that a benefit mm -hmm. kind? You know, is that like a, a donation it's or? But there, there's just I don't know, I'm kind of wittering on. But there's one more thing I want to say before I forget um, about who can vote in elections. There was a big song and dance, um, kind of rightly so, I think, about the when Liz Truss is you know the Liz Truss Sunak election when Liz Truss won. And there's a lot of focus in the press about how who the members of the Tory party were and how a lot of them were, one, they weren't even, you know, they weren't 18, so they couldn't actually vote in a general election, that this was going to be the next mm -hmm. Prime Minister without any other like, vote. At least in Holyrood, the First Minister has a vote within the Parliament. But, you know, basically, if you if you change to become the leader of the party in power in Westminster, you are the new, first, you're the new Prime Minister. So people who weren't eligible to vote in a general election actually got to pick the next Prime Minister. And a lot of these people were, were foreign nationals who were not allowed 
you know, they didn't live in the UK, but they were allowed to vote. And I think because a lot of people, particularly in Scotland, thought that that was really wrong, um, although we do have that extra layer in Scotland, it technically was, Nicholas Sturgeon's replacement to Hamid Yousaf technically pretty much was a shoe-in to be the First Minister. And uh, it's interesting because then you start to look at political party members and there's quite a lot of interest in kind of international members in a lot of parties and what that actually means. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it's something I think we just need to think about in more detail. And I'm not saying that... I'm not saying that being a party member who doesn't live here shouldn't get you to have a say in the running of your party. But I think when the net result is actually, you know, the leader of, of a party yeah. in election, you know, like for, for an election that you can't, can't vote in, I think there needs to be a wee bit more kind of discussion about that. Well, one, one of the rules, I mean, this this was always one I, I quite enjoy because I've done many electoral returns um, as an election yeah. agent, specifically for the SNP. Yeah. And you, you, you have to disclose, like, how much you spent on leaflets and stuff. You don't actually have to mm-hmm. disclose how many leaflets you got. You just disclose yeah. how much it was. And you, and you give the details off the printer. Mm-hmm. So you would say, this printer provided us leaflets. This was the cost. This was mm-hmm. the date that it was paid. And one of the one of the rules is you have to pay it. You know, you have to pay it. I think it's within 14 days of the end of the election. So it's yeah, it's very right. much like you can't, you, can't, you can't have that as, like, a... A, a free loan, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It all has to be paid off by then. But one of the interesting things is, on every leaflet, you have to put who it was printed by and who it's mm-hmm. promoted by. Thank so, you. for example, mine would say, promoted by Graham Spence on behalf of SNP candidate, you know, Dana Scully. Um, and it would be, you know, and it would be printed by printer X-Files Division 2 or something with their address. And that we, we we had to we we had to do that on every leaflet. However, the electoral commission doesn't know what that leaflet was, so yeah. it effectively is kind of like now. I think this was back when politics was a lot smaller, and we weren't so quick at getting digital graphics and stuff done. We're not, yeah. uh, and you end up in a really bizarre thing. Where the Electoral Commission doesn't know that leaflet is the leaflet that's been paid for there. Now, I'm not saying leaflets win elections, because you can quantifiably say they don't. And leaflets yeah. are very cheap, so you can you can produce lots and lots of leaflets. But, yeah. for example, if we were in a local council by-election, where it's mm-hmm. a very small turnout, and, you know, you may want to spam a, a new leaflet a day. Let's pretend you could get a leaflet out a day to the whole constituency of 10,000. Um, so you get these 10,000 leaflets, which would cost you, you know, 10,000 leaflets is approximately, I don't know, I mean, back when I used to print it, was 150, 200 pounds. I imagine it's gone up a little bit just now. Probably, but that would yeah. be the kind of going rate. Yeah. Is that kind of what you, you would think? 10,000 yeah, for yeah. 250, about £150? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was if you're doing your own artwork. It's obviously a lot yeah. more expensive if they have to do any work yeah, for you. How, um, what the card is as well, how good quality the card is and glossy. Remember we had two different printers before and one we were, we were came cheap. off in your hand. We were cheap. But one of them yeah. came off in your hand and the other it didn't and there was a price difference. Yeah. yeah. Well that that's the difference between matte and gloss. Gloss is yeah, generally exactly. better. For, gloss is gen- People like matte better when they see it however gloss is generally cheaper yeah. um, believe it or not. And secondly yeah. gloss gets, it's the one that gets stuck together when it rains. Um, <laughs> but matte, matte goes mulchy if it gets mm-hmm. wet or 
is yeah. mould. It gets mouldy kind of thing. So lots to describe there. We were always cheap. We had 80 GSM. We had the cheapest of the cheap. But if you supply your own artwork, by the way, for anybody who's printing leaflets, for any political party, if you do your own artwork and it only takes you, you only have to set up your own artwork once. And websites like Canva and everything will do this yeah. for you. They'll set up your bleeds and everything. I use Pixelmator and I think it cost me like 50 quid on my Mac and that's, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, Photoshop and all that print software and stuff. Now nah, you can do it, you can do it on a Mac with Pixelmator for 50 quid, you can do it on Canva for like a tenner or something and it'll print, print bleeds and stuff. Yeah. If you can learn that skill on a YouTube video, you will save your political party thousands because you, you, you every leaflet you do, you're effectively paying the printer to do a very small task is spacing the leaflet properly for you, which you can learn yourself in about 10 minutes. It's called print bleeds. Um, mm. But one of the things is if I started spamming my fictional constituency council by-election, effectively, you would need to, as a constituent, to get the Electoral Commission to take notice, you would need to collect up all the leaflets I send you. You would need to then wait for me to put in the electoral return, which I'm allowed to do, I think it's up to 30 days after the end of the election. You would then, by the way, it's not published online, so, eh. You're not getting to see a local council by-election online. You're going to have to trip up to your local, and in my case it would be Fife House, you'd have to mm -hmm. go to your local council or local government yeah. election centre. You would then need to wait for them to go and drag the file out and photocopy it because there's no way they're going to give you the real copy of it. So they're going to have to photocopy it and send you it. You're going to be sitting there waiting because again it's one of these things that you're not allowed to take away with you. You have to review it there. And then you'd need to go through and be like, oh well I got five leaflets, five bespoke leaflets but he's actually only accounted for four. Yeah. And then you don't know. Now the interesting thing is the Electoral Commission then come speak to me and they'll say, oh you know, Graham, you've you've been doing this political campaign here, and actually we have five leaflets here, but you've only accounted for four different leaflets here. But you don't actually have to account for different leaflets. I could pay that printer one fee for the whole campaign. Yes. And, and that's where it's like, oh, well, I paid, I paid this printer £500, and then it's kind of like, oh, did you, you know, was that five different leaflets, or was that only for four different leaflets? Then the Electoral Commission have to go and bug the printer and be like, well, could you tell us what the, you know, what this this cost was. So, I mean, in theory, there's a lot of work. There's a lot of dog work that someone has to do to find Queenie out... A bill of 500 To query... Yeah, and that's just on leaflets. That's before we yeah. get anything else. And, you know, one of the things that I've always wondered is should leaflets not have to be registered in, you know, marketing materials that you're going to use in an election... Mm -hmm. Should they not have to be registered with the Electoral Commission? So, for example, this is this is item number 32109, which is a leaflet for a Fife Council local by-election in Dunfermline um, West. And this is, this is, you know, this is 32019. This is what it looks like. I've taken a photo of the front and back, uploaded it to the Electoral Commission website. This is what we are calling item 32019. And then when it goes through the doors, rather than having a... Pro Rather than having the promoted and printed by it says election item three two zero one nine. You know, so you would then you would then have an ID that you can at least cross reference and say yes, this has been declared. Because one of the one of the funny things is, and you know, and I learned this. So in the SNP, we quite often had quite new 
um, polling boards, correct boards at polling stations. I know it's not allowed in all constituencies, but in Fife. Yeah, not ours. <laughs> and we, we often had quite new ones, and they, we got them printed with people's names on them. They're quite expensive to print in the sense of print costs. They are one of the more expensive items. And then if you want them in lots of different colours, it's usually why political parties stick to one colour if they can. Yeah. Um I noticed that the Labour Party and the Lib Dems often reuse a lot of theirs, mm-hmm. so do the Conservatives, so do the Greens, so do... But they're not actually declared in the expense. So again, as long as you run more races and you have more accumulated useful material, so for example, if Scottish Labour run in 10 elections, they might have 10 times as much accumulated, um, you know... Yeah. Corex boards, yeah. and those don't get declared each time. Like you don't no. declare them. Like you, you don't say, "Oh well." There's the no point. notional cost. You declare it once, and then you're yeah. allowed to use it again and again and again. So, yeah. in some ways, political parties are incentivized to find reusable materials, yeah. mm-hmm. but they don't actually. They're they're considered like free. They're you know, if you could keep mm-hmm. this from a previous election, the other amazing loophole that exists is. It doesn't. It's not the same if it's got the candidate's name on it. But if you were to produce an election leaflet or an election um, corex or something that doesn't have the candidate's name or the campaign on it, so if it doesn't say like Scottish Parliament, you know, twenty twenty one, and it doesn't have the candidate's name that you're promoting, but it does have the it does have the party emblem. It does say SNP or you know well, vote SNP or something. Yeah. You can actually buy that outside campaign time and use it in campaign time. Can I tell you something? Well, we live in a rural it. constituency and that is what my branch did when I was in the SNP. We had um, decided there was no, before the general election in 2019, so for about a year or so, remember there was no elections between 2017 and 2019, yeah, December 2019. Uh, the last election was, um, you know, the, the general election in 2017. So what we did was, we had quite a lot of funds that, you know, very good fundraising branch um, out here. So we bought, because yeah. we were rural, field posters. But we did general yeah. field posters with the, the party name and mm-hmm. whatever like, kind of slogan-y thing was. So it was reusable field banners that we bought because then we had that outside electoral spend, but, you know, it meant the campaign spend could be on this kind of specific stuff. But for mm-hmm. field posters, people can't really read detail in field posters. They see them when they're driving past. And we noticed the yep. Tories are very good at that. The Tories are very good at owning the fields and they were during Better Together during the um, referendum. Um, and I think it would be very different now, to be honest, the way things are, but um, with Brexit. But, you know, if you're driving past and you're continually seeing, you know, a banner that very mm-hmm. clearly signifies a message, then it's pretty impactful more than expecting you to come up and close up and read the detail of a poster. And most people who put posters and leaflets together put too much detail on it. The one... They do. The kind of flip to that is, I think, probably the most successful SNP leaflet I ever saw was the the concertina one with all the kind of achievements. Mm. It was quite small, but it was a little concertina, which I would imagine was quite expensive to produce because it was all kind of like concertina together. But that was done for a particular election and then... I think it was at conference in Aberdeen. We got, we managed to get some boxes of it, and that was that was the one that we used a lot in twenty nineteen, and that was the one that seemed to resonate more than anything else. Um, but again, so non declarable in a local election. It, it was it had already been paid for in a previous election, and thank goodness because most election leaflets, certainly in the SNP, end up in landfill. 
because there, yeah. and I think that that was a very good discipline of Alba, that there was no, no you know, we were raising money as we went in that six weeks elect six week election campaign. So we made a very clear decision in uh, Mid Scotland and Fife that we would uh, we would run out of leaflets rather than um, bin them. Have because exactly. So that was our goal was to try and get I can't remember, I don't know, hundred thousand leaflets or something. But we got them through every door that we could, you know, with all the activists that were coming together across the region in Stirling, um, Perth, Fife yeah. and Clacks and just tried to get as many through doors as we could in that time. But and, and we, famously on that, yeah. we also we our corexes and everything, as a matter of imperative, because we didn't have the money, yeah. they had to be reusable. Exactly. So we were what we were doing with that election was creating an asset pool for the party going yep. forward. The other thing that we did was because in Stirling and I think Clax as well, yeah, Stirling and Clax, not Fife, but I think Perth as well, you can't just you know, pin them to, to lampposts and stuff. You actually had yeah. to have A boards. So we had some yeah. phenomenal um people like John and Cameron and different folk who actually made A boards for us. So those mm -hmm. A-boards were are actually an asset. So from an environmental point of view as well, and from like, you know, you know, a very kind of well, conscious, um, you know, kind of environmentally conscious point of view, it's a good thing as well, because it's something from a cost point of view and also from the right thing to do. It's um, a reusable asset. All you need is somebody no. who's got enough space to store them, um, which, you know, <laughs> Rob got landed with for for a long time. Um, I don't think he has them now. He's not, not an executive or anything, but... It's um, it is one of these things that you know you don't want to always have, you know, to start from scratch. Particularly if you're running a campaign and you should be using your budget, you know, your your members' money as wisely as you can to get the the most I bang remember, for your electoral buck, as it were. I remember Tasmina and Alec actually stole one or a frames that we had at a street stall because they were that impressed with the. <laughs> the quality it was going to get rolled out as part of like the campaign toolkit i, I, yeah. I remember that um just just to kind of pull that to a just to pull that to a close we we had one other big reveal we wanted to do tonight and i know oh, yeah. we're just crossing we're about to cross the hour mark now and that's you know we were talking about our fictional party which is the thistle party and uh -huh. just for everybody's sake we we sometimes do make tools for it and everything and we, we it has branding but it's not a real party it is absolutely a fake party that we have um but we use it as a vehicle to test theories and yeah, test it's good pilot you know tools yeah good kind of sand pit yeah. area for us to play with so just to let everybody know if you stumble across the thistle party it is a hundred percent vivacos and is a hundred percent fake it is a it is a it's test data. It's a skunk strategy. works for Scottish politics, um, and one of the one one of the things that we've seen. And Brian Cox said this it was it, it was in the paper, wasn't it, Alison? He was mm -hmm. talking about yeah. how we shouldn't really call it. It was to avoid the Scottish National Party because the word nationalist is kind of is kind of bad, and we didn't want yeah. that to be. Nicola Sturgeon said so, that before as well in the past. She said, "If it, you know." If, I, I, knew yeah. now she wouldn't it. have picked that obviously she didn't pick it as a name from they're 89 years old now but um yeah. it was a combination of the scottish party and the national party of scotland i think it's not the SNP, yeah but... so they called it the scottish national party which made, made sense yeah. um, and this was before nationalism i mean this is i mean in fairness to them this is this, this predates the, the the main 
you know, the main thing that's got the negative connotation on nationalism was the whole, you know, Germany Nazis. But that, I mean, in 1934, that wasn't a thing. Like, well, Hitler was in power in 1933 with the National Socialist. Yeah, but you, you know what I mean? Like, there was no, there had been no reflection at this point on the rise yeah. of nationalism in, in Germany. Like, this hadn't yeah. been a, a large topic that had been debated by this point. So, I mean, if the SNP had been founded 10, 15 years later, I think there would have been a different name. Um, and it, it's sad because the SNP is not, a, a, you know, commonly nationalism is regarded as a right-wing sort of authoritarian, really, yeah. really nasty image to have. And the truth is, the SNP and the people in the SNP, the members of the SNP, are absolutely a centre-left, absolute pacifist organisation that has no desire to you know, cause anybody any ill or harm. And very so internationalist. It, it, very internationalist. It's very it's very progressive rather than regressive. So, I, again, the word nationalist and nationalism shouldn't be appropriated by others as only a negative term because there are some positive elements to the, the, the you know, the SNP is a standing example of a positive element of nationalism, civic nationalism. Um, it's more about the nation because it's Scottish National yeah, Party, but a lot of people call yes. it Scottish Nationalist Party, but it's actually a Scottish National Party. It's like the National yeah. Party of Scotland. Exactly. So the, it was suggested that maybe they should change their name to the Scottish Independence Party because it, it's possibly a bit softer and it's possibly it, it, it transitions quite well. There's a there's an article actually where Peter Murrell at one point says that the the garish uh, sort of you remember the sort of limey yellow colour of the SNP and the mm. black was possibly off putting to women and mm -hmm. they wanted to soften that, which you'll note that when Nicola Sturgeon took power, they actually did soften the yellow mm -hmm. and it went to that sort of more faded yellow than the, the, yeah. than the bold and the sort of lime green yellow. So we did, I mean, the, the SNP's transitioned branding a few times. It's changed from its old font, Chulla, to its new font, um, Sensibility, which is much rounder and friendlier and conveys a sort of comfort rather than a, than a hard typeface. Um, and I think that... One of the one of the things that came out of this is should they rebrand to the Scottish Independence Party? That was Brian Cox's article, um, and you know they, they've not done it and they've never kind of taken it forward because it is a pain in the butt to do, I suppose. But someone registered Scottish Independence Party dot Scott um, mm -hmm. as a domain online, and we we wondered if this you know it was speculated and we wondered too was this a new movement and. You know, what were the thoughts there, Alison? Yeah, was it? Got a lot of on this. it was online. It was certainly online. But the the general sentiment is people thought there was another party coming, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yep. And that is what people believe at this moment in time. Mm -hmm. We 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 done a deep dive. So one of the cool things about the online domain name system is it is almost transparent in the sense it tells you where the websites are mm. that you are visiting so if you're on a mac you can quite easily go to your terminal which is the little uh, the little uh, black square with a little uh, oblique in it and you can type in there you can literally type in the word who is w-h-o-i-s and then put space and then you can type something like google.com and then what it'll do is it'll tell you who registered it and where about they registered it and when so and when they registered it. So 
we we we've had a bit of fun with this because at first there's no they've kept their they've kept their personal information their name and their address private. So this this started the scandal. Like who is this? So we we started going through like who could this be? Who who could this be? And we we started going, you know sneakily through it and we're like oh well is it the SMP and it wasn't the SMP we thought is it Alba but it wasn't Alba then we thought is it like ISP it wasn't ISP was it the Salvo crowd no it wasn't the Salvo crowd so we, we were, were starting to get there and then we decided to go a bit wider so we started like is it business for Scotland but it's not business for Scotland we're like what's going on here we did find, however, we thought at first, and I, I questioned them. I questioned them. I mean, I, I don't know if Alison could because she's a director, but I, it, the common wheel used yeah. the same registrar, really? which happens to be one, two, three reg, as this new in Scottish Independence Party dot Scott. So they are both the same registrar, and I was like, yeah. I think we found this could be it. And then I asked, and no, it wasn't. <laughs> Just a lucky coincidence. I thought, who else could it be? And then the voteashregan.com. But of course, I registered that domain, <laughs> which is the same domain registrar. So again, and I can confirm, we did not register um, the Scottish Independence Party. So do you want to tell the rest of what we've done tonight, Alison? How we narrowed it down to who we think it actually was? So we started looking at other Scottish Independence Party domains to see, okay, because obviously there's loads of different um, suffixes to dot .scot. There's like... Your dot .com, dot .org, dot .com, dot .org, dot .net, dot .online. There's loads of them now. So we thought, let's yeah. have a look and see which ones are free, which ones are already, you know, bought. And the bought ones, let's see who's got them. So that was our kind of next deal. We thought, oh, this looks interesting. So we looked at scottishindependenceparty.net, I think it was, was that? Indeed. Yeah. And we found it had been taken. And we found that had been taken. So we did a wee bit more digging into that one. And when you load up that page, it takes you to... The Scottish Conservatives. <laughs> Website. So we're like, ah. So then we went back to look at the, the .scot one. And it now this is not conclusive. It's just kind of no. interestingly, you know, inferring Suspect. from from common data, and they were both registered on the same day. So that we thought that was quite interesting that both the within dot hours of each net, other. Uh, within the dot net and the dot scot were both registered within an hour of each other. So I think the kind of moral of the story is there's a lot of, kind of rumors and stuff online about stuff. You're really better just to you know not play into potential trolling. People are just trying to kind of wind folk up and stuff about things and just, you know, maybe just take a wee breath and have a look and do a wee bit more digging before you kind of jump to too many conclusions about stuff. So, so that was our wee, our wee investigative that project. Was a, that was a Viva investigation. That is an exclusive. You're on a Viva course exclusive tonight that we can confirm that Scottish Conservatives apparently have embraced Scottish nationalism yeah, and become nationalists them. themselves yeah. and have embraced independence by registering... They are now an independent party. So why don't we yeah. start the rumour that Murdo Fraser's always talked about the Tory party in Scotland should be a separate entity. So maybe he's branched off and bought the Scottish Independence Party and that's going to be the new branding for Scottish Conservatives. 
What a guy. What Stranger a guy. Who knew that all we needed... We just needed Nicola Sturgeon out the room. This, the Conservatives of, of when the SNP's in disarray. The Labour Party are moving in on the, the people who are now looking for a new party. And the Conservatives have apparently, and I'm winking when I say this, the, the Conservatives <laughs> have decided that they are now the party of Scottish independence. You yeah. could not write this. The, cons no. the Scottish Conservative and Unionist and Independence Party. Now, I would also stress that it might not be actually the party themselves. It could be just some of their supporters having a bit of a laugh. But, um, yeah, that, it could be an SNP member that's forwarded you know, it there. It could, politics, it could be funny. Politics is a funny old game. And, you know, I suppose at the end of the day, things have, you know, a lot of people are feeling a bit, you know, down and despondent and yeah. a little bit politically homeless, I think, a lot of people at the moment. So, you know, if we can do something that's a bit of a, a, bit of a smile, then, you know, hats off to those who did it, because it is actually also, really it's amazing. It's also worth us putting out there. Yeah, laugh. We saw it. Domain names can be worth a lot of money. So, for example, yeah. the SNP never registered um, ScottishNationalParty.com when right. they were founded. Obviously, domains were quite rare in 1932. But um, they, they, they never registered, and they haven't subsequently registered ScottishNationalParty.com. So we went on and had a look at the domain valuation to buy mm. ScottishNationalParty.com. And the truth is... Today, if you wanted to buy it, it's 150,000 US dollars to buy yeah. scottishnationalparty.com. Now, if you did it, they, they could hit you with a trademark infringement if they've registered their trademark. They can actually, mm -hmm. you know, get the domain off yeah. you for like £14. But you shouldn't... It, the, the truth is that domains are not terribly well enforced. So the truth yeah. is you, you can you can register domains that, that are nothing to do with you. Like, I mean, we were the Ash Regan campaign and we yeah. registered voteashregan.com, but there's nothing there's nothing to stop the average Joe going in there and taking over votehamzayusaf.com. Like, you, yeah. you, you can go in and do that. I mean, it takes them a long time to get it off you. Um, you know, these are these are things that you, you, you can genuinely do. So, yeah, don't always believe it, but it, it, it is quite an interesting tale and you've heard yeah. it here first. So, this has been a different episode for us because this is talking about Thistle and our, our, what we refer to as our open source yeah. party, our party of um, positive and outward tran uh, sort of transparent things that are no built surprises. from the ground up. To be yeah, the no surprises. This is, it's meant, and do you know what? It is more embarrassing. It is a tougher party to run. It is definitely a tougher gig. But yeah. the truth of it is, is that when you have transparency built in and when the idea is all the information is public by default and all the information is available to everyone, it allows you to have confidence in the security and knowing that nothing, and I mean nothing, can be going on hidden mm -hmm. because it was never built in a way that anything could be hidden. There's no closed doors, there's no curtains, it's effectively like a shop window of transparency, yep. like you're working in a glass box. So if you know you're working in a glass box, it makes you work harder, it makes you think about things, it makes you think, well, you know, there's nowhere to hide, so honesty is the best policy. But even things it, like, you know, you're talking about domains, you know, you need to be sharper on things like that and make sure you're thinking about not what you need now, but what you might need later. And if you don't mm -hmm. secure things like domains for different suffixes, then other people could come in and take those. And you might want to expand mm -hmm. into things later. Now you can, or people impersonate you and stuff. So it really does make you work work harder, think sharper, and and be more honest. 
Yeah. So, thank you very much, everybody. That's been an hour and ten minutes. We're going to wrap up there. You've been watching and listening to the VivaCost podcast. I've been in Graham. Alison's been Alison. Good night and goodbye. Good night.